Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Supreme Court gives a green light to the construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia. It's a project aimed at developing natural gas to the South and Mid-Atlantic. No indictment against former President Trump today. Trump says his lawyers met with prosecutors, but no charges were brought. That's in connection to an investigation related to January 6. President Biden hosting Italian Prime Minister Georgia Maloney at the White House. What the two say as China tops their agenda. Is the Chinese Communist Party launching a drug war on Americans? The Drug Enforcement Administration lays out how the CCP works with two of the biggest cartels to traffic deadly chemicals into the U.S. And the president of the West African nation of Niger is detained following a coup. Find out why the United Nations and the Biden administration are speaking out. And a win for West Virginia for those in support of natural gas. The Supreme Court today issued an order allowing work to continue on the Mountain Valley Pipeline. The High Court lifted an order from the 4th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals that had blocked construction. The 300-mile natural gas pipeline is designed to meet growing energy demands in the South and Mid-Atlantic by transporting gas from Pennsylvania and Ohio. The $6.6 billion project is mostly complete. Lawyers for the company said they needed quick Supreme Court action to finish the pipeline and put it into service by the winter when the need grows for heat from natural gas. Environmental groups have opposed the pipeline and said they will continue to try to stop construction on the project. Former President Trump's lawyers today reportedly meeting with federal prosecutors. Many expected an indictment today, but according to Trump, no charges were brought against him. Trump posted on social media, my attorneys had a productive meeting with the DOJ this morning. No indication of notice was given during the meeting. Do not trust the fake news on anything. The meeting was in connection with yet another case against Trump. Special counsel Jack Smith is investigating Trump's role in January 6th. Trump's lawyers today saying that the former president committed no wrongdoing. They said Trump exercised his First Amendment right when he spoke out against the 2020 election. And we have a breaking news update on former President Trump's classified documents case. Special counsel Jack Smith today brought additional charges against Trump, as well as Trump's aide Walt Nauta. Trump was charged with one additional count of willful retention of national defense information and two additional obstruction counts related to attempts to delete surveillance video footage at Mar-a-Lago in 2022. That's on top of the 37 criminal charges originally listed in the indictment. A third person, Mar-a-Lago maintenance worker Carlos de Oliveira, was also added to the case. Oliveira was charged with lying to the FBI about moving boxes with classified documents. The first Republican debate for the 2024 presidential election is just around the corner. NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us more on the candidates' prospects and the perspective of author and researcher Daniel Brubaker. Trump should show up to the debate. Daniel Brubaker is the author of By the People, which examines the 2020 presidential election. The author is sounding the alarm on American democracy. I believe that we are in historic times in this country in terms of uh, what has been going on related to self-governance, 
the major issue of the 2020 election and indeed the 2022 uh, midterms was the um, uh, accountability, whether the citizens are still ruling this country. As for the 2024 election, Brubaker says Trump is the obvious frontrunner, but doesn't think he has anything to lose by showing up at the first Republican debate in August. I know everybody thinks uh, and, and, and wonders that he is going to put his foot in his mouth, that he speaks uh, very, um, what, is these, what is the word, uh, from the heart and not in a very prepared way, but, um, but I've never seen him be very concerned about that, and I've never seen it really harm him in the end as much as many people, particularly his detractors, would hope that it would. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy has caught Brubaker's eye. He's very impressive for what he has accomplished and his understanding and articulation of the issues. So I think there's an opportunity there for him. As for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Brubaker feels he's done a wonderful job in Florida and admires what he calls the firm and principled stand he's taken there, but finds his current position in the race to be troubling. I don't believe he's in trouble in his long-term uh, political prospects, but in terms of this election, it seems, I mean, barring some uh, major shift. Uh, I, I think the uh, reduction in staff is probably just indicative of reading the writing on the wall. DeSantis cut over a third of his campaign staff this week, but still sits in second place. The author sees dark clouds on the horizon for the U.S., citing a recent poll saying 55 to 65 percent of Americans support the censoring of so-called false information. But Brubaker wonders who gets to determine what information is false. He sees an example of that in the treatment of Democrat candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And so he went before um, Congress uh, seeking to address the problem of censorship, and he got censored. This is not right. And a generation ago, even the Democratic Party would have uh, been on his side on that matter of the ability to, um, to speak. You know, the answer to, uh, let's say he has a bad argument on something or something that he says is incorrect. The answer to that is more information, not the stifling. On the bright side, Brubaker is excited by what he sees as a deep GOP field, saying he can't remember a time when he had at least three or four candidates he's divided between and excited about. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And President Biden is holding talks with the Italian Prime Minister today. China and Russia are at the top of their agenda. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. And President Biden today held bilateral talks with Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney. The two reaffirmed ties despite having ideological differences. Oh, and I think Italian people, I want to thank them for supporting you and supporting Ukraine. It makes a big difference. Maloney, who rose to power last year, leads Italy's most right-wing administration in decades. But the two leaders, though holding different stances on social issues like abortion, do share a lot of common ground on international objectives when it comes to China and Russia. Regardless of their political colors, we know who our friends are in times that are tough. Italy has been working closely with the U.S. to support Ukraine, and Maloney is reportedly trying to pull out of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which Italy's previous administration joined in 2019, despite opposition from NATO and Washington. That more and more countries around the world are seeing the risks um, and, quite frankly, the lack of reward 
for economic partnerships uh, with, with China. The White House this week again highlighted the risks of China's investment and infrastructure program, which critics say would expose countries' critical infrastructure and sensitive technologies to the Chinese Communist regime. But the White House said ultimately... For the Italians to speak to, I mean, that's their sovereign decision. I would... And now Washington and G7 countries are promoting their real alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative. The goal leaders say is to reduce dependencies on other countries. Reporting from the White House, at Tao, NTD News. And earlier today, I spoke with retired Marine Colonel Grant Newsham for his insights on this and other developments in geopolitics as it relates to China. Colonel Newsham is an Epic Times contributor and a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. Colonel Newsham, thanks for joining us. Biden is meeting with Italy's prime minister today, and they're expected to speak about Italy's relationship with China. It's the only G7 nation to be part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which critics have said could compromise security in the region. Do you expect any significant change from Biden's meeting with Italy today? I think you just might. Uh, this Italian prime minister is, is different. Uh, I think she might pull Italy out of the Belt and Road or not renew it when it comes up for renewal. And that would be a big deal. It would be a huge blow to the, the PRC. It would take a lot of courage on the prime minister's part. But I think she's going to do it. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Italy has been on the receiving end of a lot of pressure from China, a lot of economic warfare. And they had caved for a long time. They realized that that was not a good idea. They've gotten themselves in trouble. And the prime minister, uh, Maloney, is going to do something, I think. Be my prediction. Incredible. All right. So and next, I want to look at the Indo-Pacific. You know, in an, in an effort to strengthen ties there, the U.S. said today that it will post a Coast Guard vessel to Papua New Guinea. So how important is this move in securing the region, would you say? Well, it's an important move. It's good that the United States is showing so much attention uh, to, to Papua New Guinea, but also more attention to the region. Uh, anytime you can get you know, military or Coast Guard uh, resources, assets into a country, uh, that's a good thing. It gives you the opportunity to demonstrate your commitment, to build relationships, to influence. Now, one thing I wonder about, though, is if the Americans have actually thought about uh, Chinese political warfare that will take place, is taking place in response to this defense tie-up uh, with Papua New Guinea. Uh, the Chinese are already trying to undercut the deal. And I think that the Americans may not have uh, anticipated this, or I hope they I hope they did, and I hope they have a plan going. Uh, but we may have a military presence, and that may be a good one. Uh, but China has the economic interests of fishing, mining, timber, on the ground, and they're, they're influencing all the time, throwing money around, bribing people, uh, but also just using that commercial influence for their own benefit. So we focus on the military. We ought to focus on the economic as well. Uh, one thing I'd like to mention about the Italian prime minister's visit uh, is that if she does go ahead and um, effectively withdraw Italy from the Belt and Road Initiative, America had better be ready to stand by and provide some economic support for Italy. Uh, historically, we have not done this uh, when countries have taken on China and been hit economically. We didn't do it with South Korea a few years ago. We didn't help the Australians very much. Uh, but we have got to provide the economic support for people who stand up uh, to the PRC. So hopefully uh, our, the U.S. government will do that. 
Thank you so much, Colonel Grant Newsham, Senior Fellow at the Center for Security Pro Policy. Always great to hear your insights. Well, thank you very much. What's the extent of the Chinese Communist Party's role in fentanyl trafficking? The Drug Enforcement Administration today laid out how the CCP uses false packaging to ship fentanyl chemicals to two major cartels. And today's Melina Weiskopf has the details. Bipartisan collaboration between Republicans and Democrats is a rare sight here on Capitol Hill, but it does happen in specific areas like how to address the fentanyl crisis, which right now is the leading cause of death for Americans ages 18 to 45. Attacking the source of this, which is the Chinese chemical companies in China, but as well, we must deal with the hugeness of cartels and the persistence of cartels. Three cases in which we charged four Chinese chemical companies, eight Chinese nationals, and we charged them for knowingly providing customers in the United States and Mexico with precursor chemicals and the scientific know-how to make fentanyl. The administrator of the Drug Enforcement Administration testified that the Chinese Communist Party is engaging in deceitful measures, like false packaging to mail fentanyl precursors to Mexico, fueling two vast cartels, the Sinaloa Cartel and the Jalisco Cartel, which control the majority of the fentanyl global supply chain. You know, border barriers, technology along the border, you have to stop uh, their financial incentives. This crisis costing more than 100,000 lives per year on average. That's roughly 300 deaths every day. But if we're losing wartime numbers being killed by the cartels and the CCP, I ask you, what is the definition of war? This deadly substance sourced in China goes to Mexico and then here to the U.S. where oftentimes social media platforms are the last step. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup. NTD News. Coming up, a coup in Niger leaves many concerned about the stability of the West African nation. The United Nations is speaking out. And lawmakers today investigating what went wrong during the Afghanistan withdrawal. Military officials testifying before a House committee about what they witnessed. Stay tuned for more after the break. The United Nations is calling for the release of the president of Niger. Yesterday, soldiers in the West African nation staged a coup and detained the president. In a speech on Thursday, the Secretary General of the United Nations condemned the coup in Niger. He said Niger President Mohamed Bazoum told him that he's well after being detained. It remains unclear who is now in control of the country. Hier, j'ai parlé au président Bazoum. Yesterday, I spoke to President Bazoum to express our full solidarity to him. Now I wish to speak directly to those detaining him. Release President Bazoum immediately and unconditionally. Stop obstructing the democratic governance of the country and respect the rule of law. Niger's army command on Thursday declared its support for the coup, which soldiers of the Presidential Guard carried out on Wednesday. Supporters of the coup later ransacked and set fire to the headquarters of the ruling party. The coup followed military takeovers in neighboring Mali, Burkina Faso, and Chad, all since 2020. 
Now all four countries of the Sahel region are now ruled by military leaders. For uh, the whole of West Africa, Niger has been seen as really one of the kind of key linchpins in trying to maintain stability across the region and contain the spread of jihadist violence and general destabilization. So that's why it matters. Various Islamic extremist groups are active around Niger, which is one of the world's poorest countries. More than 1,000 U.S. service personnel are in the country. The White House said Thursday that the U.S. has not seen any involvement in Russia or the Russian Wagner mercenary group in the coup. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Two years after the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, lawmakers today investigating what went wrong. Military officials testifying before a House committee about what they witnessed. NTD's Arian Pazdar has highlights from the hearing. Our hasty actions set the conditions for the Afghan government's collapse, the Taliban's slingshot to power, and the loss of 20 years of hope and progress in the Afghan people. On Thursday, a House Foreign Affairs subcommittee held a hearing titled A Failure to Plan, examining the Biden administration's preparation for the Afghanistan withdrawal. A retired army colonel says most didn't approve of Biden's withdrawal when the U.S. left Afghanistan in August of 2021. There was very little intel evidence to suggest that the Biden administration's plan would work and a mountain range of evidence to suggest the plan would fail. General Milley, General Miller and General McKenzie all recommended not withdrawing until the Doha agreement conditions were met. The Doha agreement was brokered between the U.S. and the Taliban under the Trump administration. According to the Democrat ranking member, that's exactly when things in Afghanistan started to crumble. He says that's because after the agreement, Trump brought the numbers of troops down to only around 1,000, leaving them vulnerable to attacks from the Taliban. My, my point here is there was a really, really hard decision that had to be made, uh, that, that uh, President Biden made, uh, choosing from extremely difficult alternatives that would have uh, potentially caused more conflict and more combat operations through 2021 into the present. A major question people had after the failed withdrawal was who to hold accountable. Some say it wasn't clear who was in charge of the operation. Another retired colonel explained why he thinks that was. You've got these different bureaucratic silos, so it could be uh, DOD, state, aid, uh, the IC with their different silos, and there's nobody in charge of this group on the ground. He says the reason no one was in charge was because there was no formal plan for the withdrawal and departments acted on their own. Arian Pastar, NTD News. And President Biden today announcing new steps to combat extreme heat and protect workers. This comes as nearly 40% of the U.S. population is facing heat advisories. I've asked Acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue to issue a heat hazard alert. It clarifies that workers have a federal heat-related have federal heat-related protections. We should be protecting workers from hazardous conditions, and we will. And those states where they do not, I'm going to be calling them out where they refuse to protect these workers. As part of the initiative, the Labor Department will issue a hazard alert to notify employers and employees about ways to stay protected from extreme heat. 
The department will also scale up inspections in high-risk industries like construction and agriculture. The U.S. Forest Service will award $1 billion in grants to help cities plant trees to provide shade and help bring temperatures down. The Biden administration also plans to spend $7 million to develop more detailed weather predictions, plus $152 million to boost drinking water infrastructure and climate resilience in California, Colorado, and Washington state. And the U.S. economy grew faster than expected in the second quarter. Gross domestic product increased at a 2.4% annualized rate last quarter, according to the Commerce Department. But is the economy heading in the right direction? NTD Business's Don Ma talks to an investment strategist. And here to talk to me about the GDP number is Lance Roberts, Chief Investment Strategist at RIA Advisors. So, so Lance, U.S. economy expanded at 2.4% rate. I, I mean, tell us how, how should we feel about it? Well, so first of all, the 2.4% the rate, obviously a good number. We were running about 2% in the first quarter, 2.4% in the second quarter. So now that is inclusive of the GDP deflator. Now, I don't want to get too complicated, but that's basically the inflation adjustment for GDP. Had the deflator come in line with expectations, we would have been closer to 2% versus 2.4%. So, you know, pretty much the economy is doing exactly kind of what it's been doing, growing at 2%. So I want to put this into perspective, you know, you know, historically 2%, I mean, is that good? Well, no, you know, historically, if we go back to the 1990s, whenever we were growing at 2%, the worry was, is that we were heading into a recession. Uh, what with 2% growth used to be considered pre-recessionary post 2000, um, really because of the increases in debt, because of what's been going on with the, you know, kind of federal policies, et cetera, we've just been hoping to get 2% growth. We've been excited to have 2% growth. And no, it's not growing fast. You know, 2% economic growth is not strong enough to create economic prosperity. It basically just kind of maintains the economy. So no, it's not great that we're running at 2%. We need four, five, 6% economic growth, but that would also entail four, five, 6% rates of inflation because inflation and economic growth are tied at the hip. And of course, with 32 trillion in debt and, and record household debt, you just can't sustain higher rates. So the reason that we have to have low rates of growth and the reason that we need low rates of inflation is because of the massive amount of debt that has been supporting economic growth over the last 30 years. And just a side question, why are we now just happy with 2% whereas before we, we used to have much higher GDP? Well, we're happy about it because the economy is not in recession, right? And, and again, like I said, it, it gets you to have you know, people that have jobs, it gets politicians reelected. But we need to be thinking about you know, the issues going forward because the more debt that we continue to tack on and the, the, the longer that we run deep deficits in the economy and, and you know, every time we spend $1.7 trillion on this or $2 trillion on that or $3 trillion on this, that's just adding to the debt run, which is going to continue to slow economic growth. So in the future, we're going to be happy to have 1% economic growth, right? In the future, we're going to be happy to just be flat on economic growth because of the debt. Uh, if mm -hmm. we cut our borrowing in half right now, what's the economy going to look like? You'll be in a recession okay. almost immediately. <laughs> look, I mean, the, the majority of economic growth is driven now 
uh, by debt. Here's a, here's a fun fact for you. If you take a look at GDP growth going back to 1980, when we started running a deficit, and you subtract out all the deficit spending, we would have had negative economic growth for the last 25 years. All right, thank you so much for your time today, Lance. Appreciate it, thank you. Coming up, as the Hollywood strikes approach three months, Governor Newsom is now offering to step in and help with negotiations. His office says he's in contact with all sides. And in college sports, the Northwestern hazing scandal has resulted in looming lawsuits against the prestigious school. We'll hear from a legal analyst about the cases. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The Supreme Court is allowing construction work to continue on the Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia. The company aims to finish the project by the winter to meet demand for natural gas. Former President Trump says his lawyers today met with federal prosecutors over the January 6 probe. Trump's legal team says he committed no wrongdoing and no charges were announced. The United Nations is calling for the release of the president of Niger, who was detained following a coup. All four nations in the West African region are now under military rule, with various Islamic extremist groups active. In California, the impact of the Hollywood strikes has gotten so bad, now the governor is stepping in. His office says he has contacted all sides of the strike in an effort to keep the state's economy afloat. According to Governor Gavin Newsom's office, he has contacted all sides of the strikes around Hollywood. He has offered to help broker a deal to restart an industry that is crucial to keeping the state's economy humming amid signs of weakness. So far, neither studio executives nor actors and writers have shown formal interest in bringing Newsom to the negotiating table. Anthony York, Newsom's senior advisor for communications, said it's clear that the sides are still far apart, but he is deeply concerned about the impact a prolonged strike can have on the regional and state economy. He further noted thousands of jobs depend directly or indirectly on Hollywood getting back to work, including crew, staff and catering. The last time the writers went on strike more than a decade ago, the 100-day work stoppage cost the state's economy an estimated $2 billion. The economic hit could be even bigger this time around now that actors have joined the picket lines. Newsom's relationships with some of Hollywood's most powerful executives could potentially help him in any negotiations over the strikes as he continues to advocate for the causes of the workers. Newsom also has a connection to Hollywood through his wife, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who used to be an actress and is now a documentary director. Diabetes is taking a toll on America, impacting not only the nation's health, but also the economy, causing around $330 billion in medical costs and lost wages. Millions of Americans have diabetes, and many of them may not even know it. Congress held a hearing on diabetes today exploring how the disease can be defeated. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Congress is trying to defeat diabetes, the medical condition in which the body doesn't produce insulin or doesn't use it properly. If left untreated, the disease can result in blindness, kidney failure, heart disease, stroke, 
and the loss of toes, feet, or even entire legs. The economic impacts of diabetes on our economy and our nation are really astounding. Um, more than 37 million Americans, about one in 10, have diabetes. Senator Martin Heinrich said this hurts the American economy by lowering employment rates and straining the health care system. He suggested diabetes wasn't much of a problem in the U.S. until the 1970s. What in the early 70s changed our food supply? It was calories, right? So when we started to value calories over quality nutrition, then we set this thing in motion. Representative Drew Ferguson, as well as many other lawmakers, pointed to the growth of less healthy foods in the 1970s. This growth of unhealthy foods has correlated with the growth of obesity in America. 85% of people who have diabetes um, are obese. Representative Gwen Moore said obesity is one of the leading causes of diabetes, along with unhealthy eating. Two very effective ways to cure and prevent diabetes are eating healthy and exercising. But this applies mainly to the most common type of diabetes, called type 2. For information on other types, as well as different treatments, experts suggest consulting with a medical professional. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Ronnie James, the son of NBA legend LeBron James, has been released from the hospital. That's after he suffered a sudden cardiac arrest during basketball practice on Monday. A doctor at Cedars Sinai Medical Center said they are hopeful for the James for James's continued progress, adding that he arrived at the hospital fully conscious, neurologically intact and stable. Earlier today, LeBron James tweeted about his son for the first time since the practice incident. He thanked well-wishers who've expressed support. LeBron James also wrote that the family is, quote, together, safe and healthy, and we feel your love. 18-year-old Bronny James is an incoming freshman for the University of Southern California men's basketball team. And in other sports news, the rising scandal at Northwestern has resulted in at least two coaches losing their jobs, while multiple lawsuits alleging hazing abuse are in the works. NTD's Dave Martin talks to a legal analyst about the cases. It was nearly three weeks ago that Northwestern innocently announced a two-week unpaid suspension during the off-season, mind you, for head coach Pat Fitzgerald following a six-month outside investigation into hazing allegations within the football program. At the time, the school said the investigation didn't find sufficient evidence that the coaching staff knew about the hazing, though it said there were significant opportunities to find out about it. The very next day, though, the school newspaper ran a story detailing allegations of hazing from a former player of a sexual nature. Within just 48 hours, the university went from handing Fitzgerald what amounted to a slap on the wrist to outright firing their most successful coach in school history. The fact that they put him on a two-week suspension, knowing full well the gravity of what went on, but just keeping their fingers crossed that all of it wouldn't be released to the public and get the kind of groundswell of public outrage that it has, was you know, a pretty bold move, and it didn't pay off for them. Aaron Solomon, who's chief legal analyst at Esquire Digital, says the school's thinking that this kind of situation wouldn't blow up in their face was, at least historically speaking, not advisable. What happens in situations like this is, once the story kind of comes out and we really see how broad the situation has been, more people come forward with usually viable claims against the university. 
To date, the scandal now includes a baseball coach who was fired after allegations of bullying surfaced, an ex-volleyball player who alleged she was retaliated against for reporting mistreatment, and multiple lawsuits brought by former football players, including one from former quarterback Lloyd Yates. Meanwhile, Solomon, who expects these cases to drag on in the courts for a while, says their lawsuits will focus on two key questions. Did the university, and when I say the university, I mean Coach Fitzgerald, the university president, the, the AD, anybody, did the university know or should they reasonably have known what was going on? Somewhat lost in the shuffle here, though, is whether the players who may have actually committed the hazing crimes will be named in the lawsuits. Now, Yates' complaint says the hazing was mostly led by a group of players called the, quote, Shrek Squad, though he had sympathy for them, saying they were victims of the culture and that's why he isn't naming them as defendants. It begs the question, though, why of all schools this could have happened at such a high academic institution. This is an elite school. A lot of these student athletes came up through the elite high school system. And I think a lot of the behaviors that we're looking at here are really endemic to elite schools. I think that these are students who felt that they were above rules and above the law. And from the many narratives that have already been created around Northwestern football, uh, I just think that they thought that they weren't going to get caught. Solomon, who predicts that school president Michael Schill ultimately won't survive the scandal, has suggested the NCAA give the program the famed death penalty, the same one they gave SMU back in the mid-80s that ultimately canceled two seasons of football. Meanwhile, athletic director Derek Gregg told ESPN this week that the school has implemented mandatory anti-hazing seminars for the entire athletic department, starting with the football program. I'm Dave Martin for NTD News. Coming up, a new documentary offers a look at the issue of gotaways, immigrants who cross the border illegally and evade authorities. We speak with the film's producer about what she calls the hidden border crisis when we come back. Welcome back. Have you ever wondered what it's really like at the southern border? Or perhaps you live there and you wonder how many folks know about the things you see, for example, in relation to those who cross the border and evade border patrol. They're known as gotaways. Epic TV's latest documentary, By the Same Name, offers an inside look at life on the front lines with insights into the biggest border crisis in America's history through the lens of state and local law enforcement, ranchers, and those impacted by illegal immigration. Let's see some of that now. These men had surrounded my house. They were banging on my back door. They were banging on my front door. I can't understand it unless you're out here seeing it. 21 dead bodies on the property. Code 3 response. Is it wrong to ask people to come to your front door or your home? Then why would it be wrong to ask people to come to the front door of our nation? Their primary goal is to circumvent the checkpoints, go undetected. People that do not want to surrender, those are going to be the potential terrorists, the criminals, the real threat to the U.S. We were hoping the federal government would step in and do something, but they didn't. We have no clue who they are or where they're going. That's the scary part. Of it. 
Earlier today, I spoke with the film's producer, Kay Rubichak, for her insights on the film and what she saw at the border. Kay, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. The film digs deep on an aspect of border con control that has had relatively little media coverage. From what you've seen and experienced, how would you describe the situation? Should we be alarmed? Well, we should. And we've named this film Gotaways and the Hidden Border Crisis. And the reason for that is that those words are not in the general conversation for people who not only are aware of the open border crisis, but people who are unaware. So basically all Americans really need to be aware of what's going on and not just look at what they think they see in the media of large numbers of people seeking asylum in the US, but look at what we're calling the hidden border crisis, the number of gotaways. These are people who are coming in illegally and they know that. And for that reason, we know they are not asylum seekers by default. Yes, it is highly concerning. Now, you spoke with Texas locals at the border dealing with the rise in migrants, including gotaways. These are also often unheard stories. Could you tell us briefly about a person or an encounter that demonstrates that struggle? So we didn't only just speak to them. A lot of documentaries tell the past. But what is in this movie is you have a front row seat riding with sheriffs and deputy sheriffs and, and really seeing up close and personal what law enforcement and authorities are going through on a daily basis in Texas. And one example is a sheriff from Kinney County in Texas, and that is one area that is right where uh, so many illegal immigrants are coming through the border. And the number of border crimes and people that they are arresting and prosecuting for border crimes in the last few years is not only times by 10, it's times by 100. So in the past, maybe they had five to six uh, criminals being, you know, cases of border crimes. Now they're getting up to 500 a month. And this is in one very small county in one region of the border. So that's an example of what you're going to see front row seat in this movie. Uh, but it gives, you, it gives an idea of what's going on on a larger scale. Wow, incredible. Now, this battle over the border, it continues to intensify in the courts, in Congress, and in so many small towns and even major cities across the nation. What would you say that this film adds to the conversation that is not there already? Well, people are starting to see gotaways and people who are really seeking asylum coming into their hometowns all across the nation. What this film does is that it takes you there. There aren't any other films that really take you there, where you are riding in the car, you are seeing the uh, arrests. And most shockingly, I've, I've reported on the border, but this was one of the most shocking things for me, was that you are seeing regular Americans traveling from across this country, going to the border to participate in human smuggling, to make money. So it's not just the crimes of the cartels. It's not just the crimes of uh, legislation and, and uh, you, you know, it's not just policy issues. We're also talking about Americans participating in that. And you see this in this movie, which you don't see anywhere else. And this is vital information that every American needs to know. Absolutely vital. Thank you so much. Kay Rubichek, producer of the epic original Godaways. Really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Gotaways, The Hidden Border Crisis premieres tomorrow night at 7.30 Eastern Time on Epic TV. You can also visit gotawaysfilm.com for more information. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.